You may be busy doing something while you listen to this podcast, but you're never too busy to eat healthy if you eat Vite Ramen. This podcast is sponsored by Vite Ramen. Show support for a sponsor that supports Moore's Law is Dead at the link in the description. And if you do, make sure you use offer code BROKENSILICON. And you can also support Moore's Law is Dead if you need Windows keys or software at cdkeyoffer.com. If you go there, also use the code BROKENSILICON for 25% off Windows keys or die shrink for 3 percent off everything else on the website all right now let's get on with the show Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom. And today I am joined, as happens every now and then, I would say, by a guest that's been on before. And one that, you know, the, the longer I do Broken Silicon, the more I realize, like, if we do a guest episode every other week, that's 26 guest episodes a year. Over time, there is a Rolodex of experts that have been on this show and I was thinking, ah, oh, we have an opening for a guest right after Zen 4 is out and Raptor Lake is announced. And it'd be good if I could have someone on to talk about their positioning and competitiveness. And then I thought, well, I can't think of a better person than James Pryor. I mean, in, you've been on before. There's a link in the description to the previous episode. Anyone who wants to listen to that first from another era, it feels like already. But still, tell everybody who you are, what you did at AMD, what you've done since leaving AMD. And I mean, anything you want about this line of work and what got you here. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for having me back on. Really appreciate the invite. So I'm currently working for NXP in their IDOT MX application processor uh, product management unit. So building little CPUs, processors for edge, IoT, industrial use, automotive, consumer use. I really want to learn about these emerging markets where you see a lot of growth from you know, both inside cars, but also inside of the edge where there's a ton of activity around inference and smart decision-making and connected appliances and all that good stuff. So NXP seemed like a natural choice to, you know, they're a market leader in that realm. They're pushing the envelope with software, services, quality, everything else. So that's what I'm doing right now. Before that, I was with Sci-5. I wanted to learn about the CPU IP market. Got a good handle on that there. Learned a lot about RISC-V and the challenges mm-hmm. they've got and what they're doing, uh, how Armour uh, taking over and where the RISC-V fits into all of that and the new approach there for as uh, high-performance computing evolves. Uh, before that, as we all know, I was working at AMD, being part of the team for product management for Ryzen and Threadripper. And uh, that really sums up like the last 10 years of my life. So I thought, for the opening reader mail question, which of course people can submit if they support more slots that on Patreon, I, I do, I'd get an interesting question out of the way that is more related to, I think, your more recent work. Um, Max Elaser writes in and he says, another question for James here. So I guess he asked one before that, but this is one we're asking first. My ears perked up when I read your association with Sci Five. I'm genuinely thrilled that an open hardware CPU family is taking off where others have failed, including players with a head start like MIPS and Power. And I thought I think that can only be a good thing for the long-term health of the CPU industry. My question is about where this leaves ARM. 
it seems like ARM is disrupting x86 from below, while RISC-V is disrupting ARM from below. Obviously, the ARM ISA has tremendous penetration and it isn't going extinct anytime soon, but you see ARM settling into a different niche anytime soon, like less emphasis on Cortex, more emphasis on Neoverse, or even a MIPS-style open hardware play. Oh, wow, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, so I, you know, ARM are going to protect their uh, lifeblood, which is mobile. So I think you'll continue to see innovation and strong adoption and investment from them into the Cortex line. And at the same time, they're going to expand into the Neoverse because they want to go after the emerging growth of high-performance compute and cloud-native. So they're adapting their architecture to converge in the um, vector compute. So you've got SVE2 and that implementation. That's really what's going to make a difference in the race for the high-efficiency, high-performance data center for vertically integrated components. So we see a lot of um, the early design wins are with the, the people who are not even exposing that hardware to the customer, right? the cloud providers are building their cloud infrastructure and then selling software infrastructure on top of that. So you don't even know that you're running on ARM. Um, and that's really the strength because then you can optimize your software for your hardware and optimize your hardware for your software. Um, where RISC-V fits into that is they're following the same path, right? They, they did to uh, ARM what ARM did to x86, so taking over the microcontrollers and the small low-power market, um, especially where you don't need to expose the programming model to the end user or consumer, then RISC-V is the, the obvious choice, right? Because you can, instead of having all of these different style uh, ISAs, from Tensilica or uh, ARM or, you know, there's a dozen out there, so many different ones from DSPs to ISPs to NPUs to, you know, the list is, goes on, all these other cores, and the way that people use them isn't directly programming them, but programming an API or an interface, or even just the internal microcontrollers mm -hmm. and uh, internal logic like safety islands and real-time cores. All of those things... Uh, makes sense to move to RISC-V if you've got the, the need to consolidate and simplify your software development internally as well as your hardware development internally for a common code base and your engineers can use one set of tools, one set of experience, one set of expertise. Now, RISC-V are chasing the uh, cloud native and the high performance compute too. They've got RISC-V vector extension now ratified. So they're going after that. We're seeing, you've seen some initial momentum, you know, European processor agency are building that uh, high performance accelerator based on RISC-V. It has ARM cores as the main compute for control and command and programming. But the accelerator that's doing the heavy listing on the teraflops is RISC-V. So that's a little bit of a difference. Um, so I think it's a common approach. Sci-5 has seen a lot of uptake on their uh, vector-enabled cores combined with hardened AI. So this is where a company has figured out a specific model or AI graph that they want to implement. They've trained, they've built their models and data sets, and now they're going to go uh, run it in silicon somewhere. And you need something to clean up the data and keep the processor moving and they add on a hardened AI accelerator to a RISC-V vector-enabled CPU so that you can have adaptation to new 
data models and processor uh, updates in terms of like which style of AI, right? There was five years ago when everybody talked about was Tensor and, and mm-hmm. then now it's moving to PyTorch, you know, we're starting to talk about transformer models because recommendation engines are the big hotness for the, the big cloud compute guys. Like it's not so much like can you make a computer understand language, but now can you make it give recommendations based on someone typing in stuff like which is the best GeForce card? I think coming back with really good results instead of just pointing you to uh, an infamous podcast. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting to think of how much competition is coming into so many spaces, even ones I don't even really pay attention to. But if I do for like five seconds, it's very clear that this decade, the the 20s, the new 20s, the 2020s, if you will, is, is going to be one of a lot of change that I just don't think people were used to seeing from 2000 to 2020, right? It was like the same giants, the same names every year. I mean, look at like Risk Five. I mean, do you do you think Risk Five is going to replace most of what people used to recommend ARM for like a decade ago, and ARM just remains because it's dominating mobile markets and such, and some server markets? Like, is that where ARM just kind of becomes another x86 and Risk Five takes over as kind of like the data science, the research? You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you, you've got it right. So there's there's two races going on. Number one is uh, Risk Five to go after the custom vertically integrated hardware and the the high performance computing space, like you see for European space, as you see their processes, etc. And then there's replacing everything else in the control cores and safety islands, everything that's programmed by a customer through an API versus directly. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's how ARM took market and grabbed, uh, uh, grabbed success from x86, more efficient microcontrollers. Risk V are doing it again, but at the same time, they're developing more solutions. But the market's going to sustain both, right? They're going to sustain the growth of ARM into high performance computing, and they're going to sustain Risk V into uh, the, the same spaces because. People want choice. There's a ton of new designs to go after. Semiconductors are going to continue to grow. So it's it's there's not going to be a loser in this. Um, it, it's going to take a long while to shake out back down to one dominant uh, ISA. Right. And so you don't see like Risk Five replacing ARM because people said it would, and people also said Risk Five would replace x86. And then before that, they were saying ARM was going to replace x86. In fact. I look back and it seems so silly now a few years ago. There are a lot of big like YouTubers that were like, Risk Five is gonna replace everything. And there were even some people making claims like you can't get more IPC out of an X86 architecture, like the ISA spent. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't seem like it. It does not seem like it. Every gen there's an IPC increase out of AMD that's I mean, the lowest one we've seen is Zen Plus, and that was like a minor refresh. <laughs> they keep even Zen 4, you're getting like a around a 10% increase. Like you don't see these replacing x86 and you don't see x86 running out of room right no i mean people there's a misunderstanding there right like the isa has nothing to do with ipc you can create a tiny little single issue core uh, that has 1.0 ipc and then you can go way up the stack it's all about how much area you want to dedicate to implementing all the functions and to augmenting all of the things that make uh, high-performance processes high-performance, like front-end, the cache, the branch prediction, 
the load stores, all of these things, like you can accelerate them with dedicated hardware. And that micro architecture, you know, there's, there's limits on what you can do in different process technologies without blowing out the power of TDP or impacting the frequency scaling. But that's nothing to do with the ISA, right? A lot of, there's very little you, could, you need to change for a high-performance core for something that could be you know, an x86 ISA or an ARM ISA or a RISC-V ISA. That change is relatively small. Um, so, yeah, there's... There's plenty of room. Uh, what I would say is that there's no dominant uh, ISA right now, which sounds kind of mm. weird and crazy to do, but look at ARM, right? They, everyone talks about the ARM cores that they've built in there with their own architecture license, but where is all the improvement coming for the user experience, their own IP and mm -hmm. everything else that it does, AI, ML, and image signal processing and voice processing and uh, graphics? Like we're just ignoring that ISA, all of those different ISAs, because it's not something we have a, a downloadable book for and how to program it. But I mean, those are the things that are making the big difference in the use case. And so this is what you're seeing in the AI space. Everyone's creating their ISA and their hardened AIs. And eventually those will coalesce into the high performance ones or who's winning the market. And then someone will say, well, we should standardize this so I don't have to learn and program each one every single time because I don't want to be caught out on like you, like one company develops it, puts it in silicon, and then opens everybody up to everybody else to build their versions. They've got a generational advantage, right? They, everyone's learned that lesson from Intel um, or from NVIDIA and from AMD. Like if you're going to license or copy somebody else's architecture, then make sure you're in on the ground floor on the specifications of what the implementation is so you can be in the market at the same time. Otherwise, you're playing catch-up and it's really hard to grab share. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to think about it too because when ARM was just taking so much market share, the big new thing, you had people doing YouTube videos saying ARM is inherently better than x86 and so that's why x86 is stagnating. But then AMD got their stuff together. They started competing and all of a sudden intel started competing more too when they had more competition and now i think you're seeing a lot of stagnation in arm gen over gen performance for some of these companies like qualcomm apple a lot of that's limited to the node they're limited to right obviously but it's just funny to see like people expect arm to like double performance every year and then right when amd and intel start competing heavily arm starts slowing down and it's like no it seems like these companies stagnated now they're not now you're behind them again regardless of the isa right yeah well i think arm were inherently better because they spent a lot of intense engineering effort on making better low power microarchitectures, and amd and intel didn't so they were aiming for a much lower tdp and performance per watt space than intel was so they excelled at it Intel and AMD's focus is shifting as ARM's is. They're both coming towards the same point mm -hmm. at the same time. To say that ARM has slowed down a bit, uh, I mean, maybe on the integer side or scalar performance on vector, they're very, very strong. So I think there's there's like we, there's a reset that needs to happen for everybody covering this of like, you know, what are my metrics for performance? Mm -hmm. It's not going to, you know, like the same way we walked away from DMIPS and Drystone, we're going to have to walk away from Specint, 
right? Or mm-hmm. add to spec in, right? There's got to be more to it. There's got to, right? You see an ML bench come out. You're seeing uh, people start to talk more about Geekbench, but still these aren't representative of real world implementations, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're just, what can I port from one system to the next easily? So, so, so you're saying system. everything should be Cinebench, right? And whoever wins Cinebench, that's all that matters, right? <laughs> you might detect some sarcasm in my voice. <laughs> yeah, Cinebench is great. Just use that. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of things that are good at Cinebench, Alder Lake, the last time we talked, uh, this was, I believe, hot off the heels of Zen 3 launching. I think AMD was just starting to tease Vcash, but didn't have any real products yet. We were talking about how successful Alder Lake might be or might not be. You know, this was because yeah, the last time you were on was like mid 2021. This would have been about a year, two, a year and a half after I leaked that Golden Cove was going to have up to like a 20% IPC increase. That actually, this was the big return to form for Get Rocket Lake. I didn't realize how right I'd be about Forget Rocket Lake, by the way. <laughs> like it was even worse than I expected, to be honest. But, um, did Alder Lake pan out as well as you thought it might? Or like, you know, now that we've had some time to digest these launches, was Alder Lake as good as you thought it would be? Um, and, you know, same for like everything else that happened since then. I'm just really curious. Right, yeah. So Alder Lake surprised me a little bit. I didn't think the blending of performance and efficiency cores would work as well as it did. Uh, Thread Director does a good job of, of blending that. I remember trying to show people mega tasking uh for threadripper and the high-end risins people would just be like this you can't like it don't I, I, there's i need more control of the system but it needs to be automatic right and then process lasso you know sprung up and people were assigning affinity and, and all of this business and making that they were doing all that but intel just leapfrogged the the usability there and just said look here you go if you want like the smart thing to do for more multi-thread performance is not the fastest cores that bring the uh, the peak gaming performance. It's the cores that are everyday use, right? So uh, that worked better than I thought it would, and they mm. uh, really delivered like on the multi-thread. Like they you thought there'd be more scheduling issues at launch or something? Yeah, I think there'd be scheduling issues, latency issues. The the software would trip over themselves. But you know, Intel's a, a behemoth. They can get Microsoft. Like, why did Intel become predominant? Because of their relationship with Microsoft. And that is why they're able to keep moving. Because, you know, as much as we look at each week's market share numbers, mm-hmm. the install base out there of Intel is huge. So they're going to get everybody's attention when they say, hey, we've got a new architecture and we think that you should make some updates to it. Yeah, it's interesting because I was really excited for Alder Lake um, I've been following it for so long, so that's one reason. But also, I just saw it as this is, it's been a rough couple of years for Intel. This is one of those things to watch. I think what I said, the two projects to watch was, well, it wasn't even called ARC. It was called XE back then. And it was called, and then there was Alder Lake. And I said, at least one of these needs to be a winner. <laughs> because if both of these fall flat, I just don't know what's going to happen. And I think Alder Lake delivered. I mean, it's, to this day, fantastic. I think the majority of the builds I recommended through 2022 until just right now where it's becoming interesting again because Zen 4 is out, I said, get Alder Lake, guys. I, you know, I think this is, I mean, especially the i5s and the i7, this is the thing to get. But 
I've consistently heard that Alder Lake didn't sell as well as Intel expected. It's not to say it sold badly. A lot of people bought it, sure. But remember, Intel is used to having like 60 to 90 percent of the market. So they made enough, I think, assuming they would get that and they didn't get close to that. Why do you think Alder Lake? And again, it's not to say it's bad. It's not to say no one bought it. Why do you think it didn't perform as well as Intel expected? Because if you look up the numbers, at least in do-it-yourself market share, Alder Lake didn't gain any, it didn't seem. It at least stagnated against N3, and AMD gained laptop market share. Yeah, for sure that there was some, you know, the, the business performance was not as strong. Um, you know, in the DIY market, that's easy. The mind share is with AMD. Um the, the platform is easier. That every time Intel introduces a new socket, then there's the people who just dislike that. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, you had sky high DDR5 pricing, even mm-hmm. though they had the DVR4 compatibility. Um, you know, everybody was like, "Wow, this this really hurts." So, it, I think the macroeconomic conditions weren't on side. Even though everybody was like the PC market was super hot, they were just too hot. Um, so I think that they were more measured, but I think that, that it was foundational for what they're doing now with Raptor, right? Is, is you're going to get uh, a, a good combination platform. Like it's, it's, I'm really fascinated to see how this is going to play out because we've got both board strategies in market, right? So Intel are on combo. You can go DDR4 or DDR5 with the same socket and the same processors. And AMD are on, no, you have two generations of high performance in the market at the same time with DDR5 for premium and DDR4 for mainstream. And it's, it's you know, like, if you liked the scalability of AM4 in, for all those years, you've got to dislike the forced socket change because you're not going to get Zen 4 in an AM4. But if you like how it's optimized for the platform for years, then you're going to be like, well, I like AM5 because it's all the newest stuff right in from the day one. I'm going to invest, I'm going to, but I'm going, to, I'm going to keep it for a long time. So, you know, Intel probably have another socket change coming up. I don't know. But yeah, LGA 1851 yeah. is the one, the next one, I believe, for Meteor right. So, you know, that's another, but, you know, maybe that's where they drop DDR4 compatibility and it gets even more optimized for DDR5 and and it continues on. So it's, you know, it's always point in time. The the market, individuals, consumers, enthusiasts like keeping a motherboard for a long time. The uh, OEMs don't really care because they're building new boards all the time anyway. Um, the motherboard makers really like socket changes because it lets them refresh and replace in market and end of life the previous stuff. So that's there's everybody has an upside and a downside, and we're going to see it fight out. Yeah, I I find it interesting the whole DDR4 support argument that I see some people just clinging to like this is like a just a constraint, a horrible thing that Zen 4 doesn't have it. You know, back when Alder Lake came out. I think what I tentatively suggested before all the data was in was I would, I think I I basically was like, I would suggest if you're getting an i5 or lower, it doesn't matter if you get a DDR4 system. Clearly, if you're buying an i5, you care about price performance. So get DDR4 with it or best case, 
use DDR4 that you've had since 2015 or 2016 and just get a new Alder Lake motherboard in an i5. But if you're getting an i9, even if we don't see it right away, I was a little worried that like long term it would hold back the i9's performance. And at first we didn't really see that. It was kind of a mixed bag. But also DDR5 was twice as expensive as it is now for the really fast stuff and even the 4800 megahertz stuff. That was, I believe, twice as expensive as the 4800 megahertz stuff is now. Um, and we have games coming out like Spider-Man Remastered and a few others that show massive performance differences between DDR5 and DDR4 with Alder Lake. So I don't know. I guess this is where I get to when people say, well, you can use DDR4 with Raptor Lake. I'm like, yeah, if you want Zen 3 performance in some of these games, I suppose you can. If you want a DDR4 system, shouldn't you just get a 5800X3D? Because that doesn't get hamstrung by the RAM as much because of all the cash it has to make up for that. Yeah, well, this is something I've been thinking on a long time. And I, I think a lot of this is based on um, everybody wants to be cutting edge and they have FOMO from not showing off their latest stuff. Like, it, it never, like the need to be the most up-to-date online guide showing off your system, everybody to have the applause for it has just gotten so strong over the last couple of years that I think it's driving people away from performance per dollar. So it, it really depends. Like there, the amount of people who have unconstrained budgets to build PCs is pretty low. So mm -hmm. a lot of people have to make compromises. And I think that um, people, you should take a long-term view. And if you, if you think like, if you're balancing it out and say, well, do I buy an i7 with DDR5 and uh, a high-end GPU, or do I buy the DDR4 MOBO and the i9, because I can reuse, I don't have to buy new memory, so I've got money left to put into my i9 and the high-end GPU, because in a couple of years, I'll do a motherboard refresh and go to the DDR5 then without changing the CPU and the graphics, right? There's that whole planned upgrades and uh, moving forward uh, conversation that you can have. Um, and, and like, I don't see the need to be on the bleeding edge as soon as it launches. I'm not a day zero before benchmarks out there buyer. I, I like to wait and let it settle. Historically, it's taken three months for biases and, and mm -hmm. drivers to settle down and for everybody to, you know, like all the independent reviewers to kick the tires and find all the optimizations and stuff. And that's the best time to be informed to buy. The last couple of buying cycles, that's been a terrible strategy because there's been no supply and it's been hard to, to get in. So that's when you just have to sit there and look at your PC and be like, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. But I mean, I guess that's what I'm saying, though, is the 5800X3D is like 400. It's gone up in price a little bit recently, uh, but it's generally below 450, below MSRP, sometimes below 400. And it beats the i9 or matches it in gaming and uses DDR4. So I don't know. That, that's something that's always confused me, though, is it's like, well, if you, are, if you don't want to buy DDR5, might I suggest the processor that's also cheaper and uses DDR4? And I think that's at least what AMD was thinking by continuing to make the 5800X3D. Like, this is their DDR4 option because, you, like you said, you have to you have to change motherboards if you go to DDR5. You can't, it's not like these Raptor Lake and Alder Lake motherboards let you go from DDR4 to DDR5. Phenom2s let you do that sometimes, from DDR2 to DDR3, but that is not what we're dealing with here today. So either way, you're going to have to switch motherboards. I don't know. I guess let me kind of pivot this into something else then too. Um, has the 5800X3D impressed you? And 
do you think AMD should have launched a 5950X3D? Because I'm thinking about this more and more, like with DDR4 versus DDR5, with Zen 4 and its pricing. You could almost make the argument that what AMD should have done is just a full 3D Zen 3 lineup that probably matches or beats Raptor Lake in gaming and almost matches it multi-threading anyways, and then done a full Zen 4 Vcash lineup in quarter one. I almost wonder if hindsight's 2020, but like, do you think that would have made more sense? And why do you think they haven't launched a 16 core Zen 3D yet? Yeah, well, you know, the, the 5800X3D, I think, was a, a learner for them. It was a pipeline cleaner so they could figure out the how to build it. So, you know, jumping straight into top to bottom stack would have been mm. quite difficult. Um, I, I think it would have delayed Zen 4 any kind of parts and push them out. And I don't think anybody was like, no one's telling AMD, hey, slow down, you're, you're innovating too fast. Nobody mm -hmm. says that. So the other way to look at that is, hey, look at the, the new 7950X and 7900X and how close they get to 5800X3D without Vcash. Like, wow, and, and, and most websites I follow, they actually win too. Like by right, that's like five percent, but they win. <laughs> it, it's win some, lose some, right? So hey, did you need it? Like, what would you have done by from a product stack? What would you have done by putting three D cash versions into the market? Well, you would have softened your uplift on your new generation, and you would have really just meant like everybody's like, oh, well, I didn't really need this expensive hot CPU. I can't tune. So, you know, the 5800X 3D for me, I like it and I hate it at the same time. I like it from a product perspective. It's awesome. I love the cache. Uh, really, it's it's going to be the stalwart of the younger, like it's the hero of AM4 going forward. It's mm -hmm. going to be, you know, like the mainstream entry. You know, that's your high performance AM4 mainstream point. Yeah, I think it will continue to to run for a long time. The what I don't like about it is you can't tune it as much because they went all the way into the the guards into the guardrails to make it the best processes they could. Uh, which you know, from an engineering perspective, tip of the hat to those guys that yeah, you know, they've maximized it and get left nothing on the table. But then they also left nothing on the table for me. And the three things I do on my computer are play games and mess around with content creation and sit and stare at the BIOS and tune things and make it crash. So yeah. <laughs> it took away one of my use cases. So <laughs> I didn't like that so much. But yeah, it's, it's a good part. I think it's going to run on for a long time. Um, and that's part of the reason why I'm on the whole uh, wait for benchmarks because you know, you know that there's a new set of parts coming for Zen 4 I don't know why you would buy right now unless you are driven by FOMO and the need to show you, hey, look, I've got money falling out of my pockets. So I'm going to give it to, to these guys so that because I know there's new stuff that's coming that's faster, but I'm going to buy today. I'm glad you brought that up because that was the next thing I just wanted to discuss directly here. By all accounts, you know, I've done a video where I put this out. Is, like, what is the comparison I made? Like, it's like during an election, only 10% of the counties in a state are reporting. But based on these, early reporting, one candidate's winning by four times. So I think we can probably assume they're going to win in the other counties as well. That's what it's like me calling up Micro Center's Best Buys, Overclockers UK Newegg, Amazon's, and a couple of continents. Zen 4 in some areas is selling okay, but in some areas it's almost literally not selling. <laughs> like I had one store that got back to me today and said, hey, our store hasn't even gotten the Zen 4 CPUs yet because of some shipping issue. Uh, but here's the funny thing. No one's called us to ask where they are. <laughs> like, 
Like, so Zen 4 is not selling as well as previous generations. Um, although I, I guess I have to say this now, too. I am getting updates that since Micro Center did that free RAM giveaway with the R7 and R9s, apparently it's been a madhouse on a Saturday, but no one's buying the 7600X. So I just want to put that out there, guys. As of now, actually now Micro Center's selling them. And by the way, you might find this interesting, too. Based on what I'm getting hearing, Micro Center isn't giving the RAM away. AMD is giving a rebate to G-Skill to give the RAM away with it. So this is AMD trying to solve the issue already, which is interesting to see. This is not Micro Center saying, our sales are terrible, let's just get rid of it. This is AMD saying, uh, we need to move stock and we're going to help you, you know. So so already AMD is taking proactive, you know, mo- um, actions to keep Zen 4 going. But you already gave your opinion a little. Why do you think... Zen 4 isn't selling that well its first week, at least relative to other sales. And by not that well, I mean it's really selling quite bad. Um, and what do you think they should have done differently? Well, I mean, asked and answered, right? That that is the everyone's hesitant because of DDR5 memory prices. Everybody knows that they're high and they're coming down, but they're still high. So everybody is sitting on the fence saying, why would I buy? DDR5 memory now, when it's going to get cheaper pretty quick. So, you know, this is why AMD are testing with Micro Center, what should I do? Uh, you give it, you know, like free memory, well, who's not going to buy Who's not going to buy a CPU with free memory, right? So you, you think maybe this is almost like a limited test, like they're like, hey, we're not going to help out everyone at Fry's, we're not going to help out these people over here, but what we'll do is only at Micro Center we'll see if removing the DDR5 cost completely solves the issue. Like, you think they're this is because they're only helping micro center as far as I can tell right now, which is interesting. You think they're specifically targeting one retailer to see if this is the issue? Yeah, that's it's a little bit of uh, squeaky wheel gets the grease. And also, let's be strategic and not uh, waste all our cash reserves. And, you know, so they were very limited test here. I think G School, Micro Center, AMD going to market together, willing to do, like, I'm sure G-Skill is putting some money into this uh, mm-hmm. just to, to help everything move along. But they, they're testing, right? Like, does this really make a difference? Um, I probably wouldn't have done free memory. I would have been like, <laughs> well, like, you know, make it. I, I agree. G-Skill's got to be in on this somehow, right? Like, there's got to be some marketing opportunity they see because it can't just be they're giving them 180 bucks per system. <laughs> so I think the other part of it is the reason why it is free memory is because motherboard prices. The motherboards are super expensive because they were drop shipped in instead of uh, freight overseas. Mm-hmm. And that, that's they are. They were all flown in. I was warned about that. Yes, they're all flown in. So you know the motherboards are high. What is who can who can like take the hit here? And who's the good partner? We're all finding out. Zskill are super aggressive, wanting to be the guy for DDR5, and I, I like that. I, I've been using Zskill for years. They're my favorite. But that's that's the you know the mechanism. So it's combination of it comes down to total platform cost. AM5 is premium, premium price. And people are waiting and seeing, like, because they see the headlines, like, over the, you know, like recently we've seen Credit Suisse on the brink. Like, whoa, what's going on in the world? The macroeconomic condition, we've got a lot of problems going on. Um, but yeah, let me go ahead and build a $3,000 PC. Uh, well, maybe I should, right? There's, that thought process is going on. People are pausing. They want to make sure they got enough money for, for Christmas, for the holidays, for the season. So it's 
this, you know, there's the normal seasonality challenges of launching at the end of Q3 and the macroeconomic conditions of once in uh, a generation uh, recession. Yeah, I mean... It's interesting. Chris Rich writes in and he says, in the space of a few months, we have three GPU releases from three different companies and two CPU generations coming out as well from two other companies. Availability looks good. Prices are generally trending down, even if they're pretty high at first, but nobody seems happy about this, do they? What is that about? And I think you're touching on it, right? Like, this is something I've been warned by a few retailers and contacts is there's a chance everything just sells bad this fall because it doesn't matter if Zen 4 is a bigger uplift than what Zen 3 was. doesn't matter if Lovelace is a bigger uplift than what Ampere was. The fact is people bought during a booming market through a pandemic. That's when they bought. Now there's a recession. It could be four times better. They bought, though, so they don't care. They're not upgrading in one gen, right? And that no matter what they do, because there's a recession, people have shot their load already, right? Like that that's basically what's going on, possibly. I think that's definitely part of it, is that the you know, the normal cycle, people don't buy PC parts that often. The number of people that do buy every year or 18 months is pretty low. Well, we saw a massive demand spike because everybody figured out they needed better PCs at home, but they also got a bunch of crappy PCs that are going to need upgrading and fixes pretty quick. I think it's more about the even though prices are coming down, they are still stratospheric. Like, they are not cheap. Uh, and I should qualify that. I, mo I mostly mean GPUs and motherboards. If you look at AMD, what they've delivered in the 16-core, compare that to mm. you know, what a 16-core performance used to be and performance per dollar, like up and to the right, that is just fantastic value there. But it's the platform cost. It's so expensive, and people want to find every little place they can to cut back. So that's why you're having people soft on this because they wanted to drop in upgrade, right? Mm. They just bought all this stuff. They just invested in AM4 and LGA 1700. Who's offering them a drop-in upgrade? Mm. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting too. Like I looked at the 7600X and I think in most benchmarks, it was, I think, beating the first generation 16-core Threadripper and multi-threading. And I was just laughing like, God, that was just four, five, it was just five years ago. We had a 16-core for the first time HEDT platform, and now we have a little 6-core beating it at absolutely everything and probably over doubling it in single-core performance. Like, But I wonder if they just shouldn't have even launched the 7600X until B650. You know, like no, maybe that was a mistake to even let it get reviewed. Yeah, from a platform value perspective, 7600X on these uber expensive motherboards is a really bad optic. But at the same time, it drives everybody to say, well, I want 650 in market, gimme, 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 which is fantastic demand signal for the motherboard guys. And it's going to give, like, it's a, it's a it's a good guy for all the reviewers in the media too because there's going to be a lot of hunger for re-reviews on B650s with 7600Xs. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, you know, there's no real loser there. The 7600X being launched right now because of OEMs, uh, they like to see how it performs in the channel before it goes into systems. They're already working on the designs, they're already building all that stuff together. They've already got B650 chipset and uh, putting together their assortments, but they want to see the reaction so they can dial in their pricing and messaging and understand where they're going to fit into the grand scheme of things. Now, 
I am my own answer to this question I'm going to ask, but you were a senior product manager at AMD. So this was literally your job, but I'm wondering if you can play, play along here. I mean, Max Eliza writes in and says, how long does it take for a big tech firm to turn around a bad launch? Like you're pulled into a boardroom at AMD and they ask, how do we fix the perception do we do a reboot? What James, what do you think we should do moving forward? I wonder if you can say like literally what you would advise. Yeah, I mean, the problem with Zen 4 is not technology, it's platform cost. So AMD needs to build and strengthen their muscles with their channel partners. So that's the motherboard guys, the memory guys. Um, they, you know, they're responsible for helping them get to the right message of like, you know, building the value prop. So they, they need to build the message of why their platform is good value. Uh, so it would be a, you know, the, the easiest thing to do is a full on press tour, go around, uh, talk to all the reviewers, get engaged with the community, explain things, go into detail on architecture, on specifications, on decisions, really make it engaged. And that'll drive that positive sentiment back to being like, hey, we had a good heart here. We made the right decisions for the right reasons, but you know, there's things we can't control. Um, obviously, the, the late BIOS delivery kind of undermines that, but mm -hmm. it's, you know, everybody has uh, issues that you've just got to decide to work through. So it's, as far as bad launches go, this is not a bad launch. It's just going to take. No, time. it's just not a. It's just not a banger, right? Right, that's part of it, right? You got to reset expectations. Everybody is is looking for that. Like everyone got addicted to when Intel dropped Conroe and uh, Skylake and just blew everything else out of the water. And there was no decision to be made. There was a clear and obvious winner. That era is gone. There is now a healthy competition in the market, which we should all want and, and continue to support because it drives uh, healthy pricing, assuming a healthy economy. So that it's now getting to, you know, we're going to get into that as we start to see uh, the macroeconomic conditions affect everything else. So we're going to see more, comp more competition, which is going to make it everything else more, you know, everyone's going to build up their value prop. It, it, Previously, like in the last couple of years, it's been like, hey, this is new and it mm -hmm. works good. And, and this is the best. It. Like it just seems right. like whoever launched, they're like, this is the best. That's all there is to say. Yeah. Now you've got to go back to um, like actually explaining your value prop and talking about more than just speeds and feeds, right? I'm super delighted by the clock speeds we're seeing and the, the high single thread performance and the multi-thread performance. But now it's time to go tell people why they should care about that. So here are all the software uh, advantages you get from that. And, you know, I'm not saying AMD aren't doing that. They are, but they need to do more of it, more obviously, and get in front of the people who um, maybe built their first PC in the last two years and you know, think of it as like, hey, man, that wasn't as hard as I thought, but, man, it was expensive and hard to get the right parts. Now there's a whole new set of stuff. This is confusing. Maybe I shouldn't have started this PC thing, right? They've got to get those guys and keep them engaged. Although this fall has been insanely busy for most members of the Moore's Laws Dead team, there's one team member who's been allowed to take it quite easy recently. And, well, 
Unless you're Reesey, unless you're just a dog chilling on a fall afternoon, you could probably benefit from as little wasted time as possible. And you should probably then try Vite Ramen. Vite Ramen is a delicious American-crafted source of protein and nutrients that takes minutes to make without sacrificing taste. This includes their classic packages that make it easy to add protein and other ingredients of your choice while cooking, and their new Ramen Go packages that offer a healthy microwavable option for those who truly only have a 15-minute lunch break, whether you're back in the office now or still just working from home. Vite Ramen, you'll never be too busy to eat. And if you click the link in the description and use the offer code BROKENSILICON, you can save 10% off a variety of different products, including special bundles for Moore's Law said fans, raw nudes if you want to make up your own recipes, and the Vite Go packages as well, and other cooking utensils and products. Whatever you'd prefer, using these offer codes really helps support Moore's Law is dead tremendously, and it gets you a good deal on a healthy, fast-to-make and tasty, reliable sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead. Try Vite Ramen today. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. Melodic Warrior writes in and he says, Hi, James. I remember your prior guest appearance. Uh, Sorry for the terrible joke. With the recent crashing of crypto, inflation still crawling along, and most demand satisfied for especially the do-it-yourself market right now, do you think that product launches over the next year to even two years will need to bring a lot more features and lower prices to be appealing to consumer customers? It's not enough to have the best thing that's new. And I think that's kind of what you're getting. Like, is it moving forward? Can AMD just, well, here's Zen 5. It's 7 gigahertz and 32 cores, but it's $1,000. Like, do you think that's just not going to cut it anymore? Like, it has, it's kind of cut it for the past few years. <laughs> Yeah, the, the story's got to be bigger. Like, I'm I'm pretty pleased with AMD's performance per dollar on their products. Like, you know, that they're, they're when you, if you plot it out a graph, they're always above the line incrementally for the year-on-year increase. You are getting more value, but the mm-hmm. the market are now looking at the entire platform cost. So they're not just looking at the CPU. They're saying if I have motherboard and CPU and memory together, because those are the three things I have to buy. Where is my performance per dollar? And they're comparing it. And that's going to be the, the the work over the next couple of years is to get everybody back to, um, you know, like I, I remember, you know, a 7600X now is what, $329, something like it that. It is 300 yeah. 300 right? And the 1600X was 199 229 mm-hmm. when it first came up. It went to, to you know, like... 199. There's there's a lot of people who remember because it's not that long ago. It isn't like the ages of ancient Antioch where <laughs> the gamer's choice CPU was 200 bucks. Now it's being pushed into the 300 buck range, and the motherboards are, are pushing up at the same time. So there's beyond inflation uh, uplift, and part of that's because of the new technologies. Like you've got to have redrivers on the motherboard for the new mm-hmm. higher speed stuff. DDR5 is, you know, all of the, the new tech on there does cost more, but it's not the couple of hundred dollars more that the shelf prices show. And that's that's really what everybody is looking at. And then they're also watching, um, like everybody's a retail investor now, everybody's watching quarterly earning results and going, oh, so your, your new platform costs more and how did you do, oh, look, record margins, record sales, record profit. Um, yeah. I think I see how this works, you know, because mm-hmm. you don't get to see the reinvestment in the next gen platform. You don't get to see how much cost it's taking. You don't, you don't get the full breakdown. So simplistically, they're just looking at it and say, well, you made a record amount of money and your prices are high. 
Um, maybe I'll just wait until you feel the pain. Um, you know, I, I, it's not going to work, but. <laughs> well, you know, but I think we also have to acknowledge that it's a good thing, but there are some perceptual downsides for these companies if they like bring massive performance increases every year. I mean, like look at both Raptor Lake and Zen 4. You go, yeah, look, no, it's, you know, it's a lot better. Like we're talking about a, something that is significantly better than last generation. But my guess is Zen 5's also going to be significantly better. And if you're going to charge, you know, if, now, if where we're going is it's $500 a CPU, not $200, $400 a motherboard, not $200. And the RAM is $200, not $100. Well, then I'm just going to get Zen 5 because you're telling me you're going to keep this, you know, relentless innovation every year. Well, then I'm not going to relentlessly spend because it's going to keep getting better and you're charging more. Now, if it costs less and I could get it now, I would. But that's not what you're doing, AMD uh, and Intel. You know, Raptor Lake costs more than Alder Lake as well. So I, I guess, you know, this leads me to a question then, though, this like media campaign you think AMD could do to turn around perception I think what they should do is work on messaging, maybe like, you know, I really like I'm those Robert Halleck videos where he would explain things. I thought those were great. He should have done one for the 95 Celsius thing because it's not an issue. But I'm told by people who work at micro centers, they're tired of answering questions like people saying, but it hits 95 C. And their answer is usually, yeah, well, Intel processors hit 100 C for 10 years and there was no issues. But but still, AMD should have been ahead of that. They shouldn't have just like put in the reviewer document. By the way, Gamers Nexus, this hits 95C, surprise, and then smoke bomb and walked away and expected them to have the right message. So I think maybe they could work on their messaging. They could work on making sure people understand what does what and why things are done the way they are now. But I do wonder if there's a point in doing a big media thing in a recessed market this holiday season, because if B650 is not out yet, DDR5 prices by all accounts are just going to keep going down over the next six months. I almost wonder if what AMD should do is just do little things here and there like they're doing with Micro Center and marketing to like make sure things stay on track. You don't want nothing to sell. But then quarter one, when you have the Vcash models, launch those. Don't be greedy. Launch a 7600 non-X. Launch a 70, uh, then, yeah, 7600 non-X, 7700 non-X, 7800 X3D. Best yields of the eight core go to 7800 X3D. Worst yields go to the 7700 non X. Don't even really make the 7700 X anymore. And then you'll get good reviews and they'll be reviewed on $150 B650 motherboards with cheaper RAM. I almost wonder if they should just do a little bit now, but sidestep it, wait for Vcash and new models, and then just do a reboot in quarter one. Because I think the damage, this is my perception, the damage has been done now. Do you think that's a smart thing to do? Or do you think don't wait, just keep, just, you know, fight the narrative right away? Uh, I totally wouldn't wait. I would uh, keep pushing on it and prepping for the next uh, launch, getting ahead of those questions. Like, because when you get, like, now that it's out there that these 3D cache versions are coming, so which you, they are, talking, right? <laughs> go talk to all the the communities, the partners, the customers, the system integrators, and the media about the challenges of the first launch so that you can address them in the second launch as part of, you know, like your ongoing marriage. You're going to make your story yeah. better, right? I, I'm pretty sure they, they are doing that. It's just it's too soon for them to, to really pull together their first responses. So, 
you know, they're going to be strategic and purposeful. Um, and, and they're also waiting to see what Intel does, right? There's no point in just coming out again strong when you've, you've just seen Intel's pricing and their own performance kind. Uh, you've got to go address that uh, as well. Well, yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Intel because it's funny to think, and this is something I've been pointing out for a couple of months now, is it's like, hey, guys, AMD's launching a month before Intel. Whatever issues they have, they'll have a month to address that by the time Intel actually launches. So as bad as this looks now, how will things look, though, if DDR5 is 10% cheaper next month? If, you, but Based on what I'm hearing, the margins on Zen 4 are pretty good. And if you look at how AMD responded to Alder Lake, they didn't do any official price drops. What did they do? They just let them drift below MSRP. Who's to say we won't have like Newegg selling the 7600X for 280? Again, with $150 motherboards, cheaper RAM, just three weeks from now, then that's what Raptor Lake's going to be compared to. I think we have to consider that like what you're seeing now, there's a month for prices to go down right before Raptor Lake comes out. But let's let's talk about that. How do you see Raptor Lake stacking up to Zen 4 when it does finally come out? Yeah, I really like Raptor Lake. It's um, there's some things I like about it, some things I don't. Like the the, the improvement is pretty solid. Uh, you know, even though the prices are coming in a little higher competitively, they're still good. Um, and they've got an established ecosystem, right? So they're not going to have to airship motherboards to get mm. that in place, right? They're already in place. BIOSes are going to be updated. Anybody who needs a CPU to update a BIOS can find one. It's a, a much much simpler launch for them in that respect. Um, and they've, they've got the DDR4, DDR5 compatibility, so they can address a lot of the criticisms that are going to come their way for platform cost. Um, but they, you know, they get their own set of challenges there. But it, it gives them easy answers, like, you know, hey, you've got a B650 motherboard and a 7600X, how are you going to challenge that? Well, I've got a, a DDR4 platform board with my CPU, and that's a much lower platform cost. I'm the winner. You should buy that. Uh, well, how do you challenge the X3D? Well, I've got DDR5 upgrade capability. So, you know, do you want to have X3D and you don't know and it's a dead-end platform or do you want to go to my platform, which is going to scale into the, new, into the new generation CPUs and new memory tech? So you've got options, right? There's ways to spin the launch each which way. What it ultimately looks like to me is competition. And I'm really excited about that. You know, I think that Intel... Are having a hard time of it right now as they're restructuring and uh, refocusing, um, so they're not able to do much more than just call out the the lifeblood of the heart of the market, which is hey, look at our great gaming performance mm-hmm. and look at our, our great multi-thread performance. They're not able to get into their uh, AI ML accelerator stuff. They're not able to get into the uh, integrated GPU capabilities and the video encoding and all of that stuff, which people find really useful, but are not bubbling up to any kind of uh, impact in reviews right now. So that's their challenge, right, is to go add value to their platform with all of the rest of the CPU silicon that's in there because you know, it's, it's not just CPU cores. There's more to that CPU. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really frustrating, too, with the Zen 4 launch that we didn't have the RTX 4090 or the RX 7900 XT out yet. 
because it was hilarious to me, especially like on the hardware unboxed, which was, you know, I don't think there's a point really in doing 720p testing with these CPUs because at what at a certain point you might actually be running into some memory or something else bottleneck that's lowering the frame rate in some of those games. But you test in 1080p medium, the 3090 Ti, surprise, it's like you're getting 200 frames and it just, you see all the top CPUs are like near a 200 frames with the Zen 4 ones on top. I just wonder how many of those games you'd add another 5 to 10% if you have the new graphics cards that are substantially stronger. And, and we'll have that for the Raptor Lake launch too, which is what's interesting. Yeah, you're, you're right. At a certain point, these these game tests uh, really become fabric tests, like how fast can you shuffle the commands around versus instead of like how fast can you actually make the game go that's why i'm always a fan of the look at the games that you like and the resolutions you play at with the settings you play at like i don't think people who buy any of these cpus are 1080p medium uh players <laughs> no. so they should you like don't even look at that for basing your purchase decision don't argue with anybody who brings it up because they're it, it's it's a false flag it's a it's a straw man argument they're they're just it's not they're just trying to drive you towards fine wine, and uh, I hate that particular argument because you should buy <laughs> what you need now. Well, yeah, and uh, my favorite thing to point to is when Zen 1 came out and people were comparing the KB Lake quad-core, only four threads, i5 against the 1600, and they were saying, well, you see the i5 wins in 720p now. That means they'll win in 1080p in the future. It didn't. You just tested if the i5 could run games from that year in 720p. You did not test different resolutions in the future. You didn't test any of that. You know, you have to think about what you're actually testing. But um, one thing that I do want to get to here, Meyer TechRants writes in and he says, do we have any guesses as to why AMD seems so happy to get bent over the table in multi-threaded performance at the low end with Zen 4? Even the 7700X seems like it's going to lose to the 13600K by a notable amount. AMD could easily at least mitigate this by shifting core counts a little bit, right? Like move the 8 core to the R5, the 12 core to the R7, and 16 core to the bottom I9. I mean, you could the bottom R9. You could even just clock the top R9 faster. This way, they'd have a small loss in the 5 tier and a small win in the 7 tier and competitive in the 9 tier. Does AMD see this loss in lower segment performance as significant at all? Or do they just think it doesn't matter? Yeah, that's a good question. I think they're they're not happy about it, and they're going to come back with uh, an updated product strategy in future generations. Um, I think that you got there's a lot to do in a product stack definition, and um, you know, just coming in and saying just stack drop, like just price discount the seventy seven hundred X. And call it a seventy six hundred X, or give you free 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 RAM with it, <laughs> or give you free RAM with it, right? So it's like it is, um, you know, psychologically very hard to do that. Like one of the um, one of the the great things you can do is to get your competitors higher tier chip compared to your mid tier chip, mm -hmm. right? Like to say. The Ryzen 5 1600X is really an i7 competitor. That mm -hmm. makes you look so much stronger. It makes you look so good. So here we have 30, 13600K looking competitive with the Ryzen 7, mm -hmm. right? Or it's closer to it than it is the Ryzen 5. 
So, Certainly in multi-threading, yeah. <laughs> right, in the multi-threading, which is kind of the, the, the question here, right? So this is like, this is, you know, gamesmanship, brinksmanship, you know, this is brand marketing as its finest. Uh, AMD is sticking to their brand promise. 7700X is eight cores and Ryzen 5 7600X is six cores. That's what you get. You know what you're buying. You know how it comes. That's you know, it's as simple as consistent. People don't have to learn all that stuff. Intel are going through the pain point of performance plus e-cores, and you can see it in the online discussion anywhere of, no, you know, you, people will tell you, like, don't even tell me about the e-cores. They don't count. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they Which I find do. silly because I yeah. think they do count, but... <laughs> 100% do count because uh, they make a, a big impact in performance. So it's... Um, it is, is, it is a, uh, I think that the strategy here is to say, like, efficiency cores aren't real cores, so you shouldn't count them. You know, we're giving you more real cores, right? That's behind the scenes. That would be my... It sounds like Intel 10 guess, years ago. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then Intel trying this bold new thing of, no, I've got performance and efficiency cores, and you shouldn't care what kind of cores are giving you performance as long as it's best in class, and that's us. So do you think, because it just seems like AMD realized that the 7600X is likely to at least tie, if not slightly beat the i5 Raptor Lake in single threading. And then if it wins by 50% in multi-threading, I guess they just throw up their hands and say, whatever, we won single threading by 5%. But it is a little cheaper. Like the i5 is going to be $330. I think over time, the 7600X this fall is going to drift to like $280. Do you think that's enough 280 for their six core versus 330 for Intel six plus eight core? Or or do you think they should have made it like 250 out of the gate? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure they could have afforded to and 350 for the 7700X. Because if you ask me the 7700X, I don't know, from my perspective, a better position to be in is saying the 7700X is the same price as the i5. It wins in single threading. It basically ties in multi-threading all big cores. So nothing to worry about. That's a better position at least in an argument to be in than saying, well, we win by 2% in single threading and we're $10 cheaper. I don't know. Uh, do you think this was a mistake? Do you think it's too early to say, or I, what do you think? You know, no one I know about how they, they price and build these things. Then um, they don't have a lot of choices. They've got a, a corporate margin target. They have to hit uh, a commitment to the company for top line revenue and revenue dollars. And they've seen, wafer price costs increase, chip packaging costs increase, shipping costs increase, validation and tests increase. Everything has got more expensive to do. This is a much more expensive chip to build and produce than it was uh, a 1600X. So there's going to naturally be an increase in price point. Uh, Coming into the market, they're still underneath the price point of the 13600K. So they're going to be able to say, well, who's buying Ryzen 5s? It's gamers. Gamers don't care that much Mm -hmm. about multi-threading wins. They care about the gaming performance wins. And we're solid there. We've got a good value prop. And anybody who comes at me with, yeah, but platform costs, I'm going to say, have you met my friend, the 5800X3D? And they've they've Mm -hmm. got an answer, right? They've got the AM4, AM5 strategy going back to the market. So I don't think... You, whenever you come into these things, you're comparing A versus B, that, that's a product, that's a company side uh, discussion. 
the market side is always what's available. What can I buy? In it's, brand yeah, new it's really A versus B versus C versus D in real yes. life. This gen versus last gen, motherboards, memory, everything all together. What is the, the platform cost? And, you know, it's hard for the team. This is where AMD needs to go do the work and build up mm-hmm. this overall platform story and say, like, look, I've got this super strong value prop when you consider AM4 versus AM5 as a whole stack in the market today. Look at these. And they should go encourage all their motherboard and memory partners to get together and say, like, Here's you. This is what you should be talking about. How do the CPUs and the G and the CPUs and the motherboards and the memory work together? Like reset expect, like set expectations. Who should be buying three hundred dollar memory kits, or should be buying one hundred fifty dollar memory kits? Who should be buying five hundred dollar motherboards or seven hundred dollar motherboards? And who should be buying, you know, the two hundred dollar boards? So that's the the conversation that needs to go happen. To you know, it's the sales enablement thing. They've got to go talk to their channel partners. Got to get the focus right. Got to do the sales training, uh, like you said. You know, the people in Micro Center don't want to just be like, well, you know, they got kind of blindsided on the 95C thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, Intel have had 100C for a long time. What's another processor we don't care about the temperature? GPUs. We, you know, GPUs you've been had forever. You've had a slider that said power target, temperature target, fan profile, go. And you mm-hmm. just you've just been okay with how it performs in those paradigms for your own personal use, and all of a sudden, when a CPU does that, where skies fall and chicken little run away, when they just gave you this incredible advancement of taking all of the uh, marginality off the table and put it in your hands in a really simple way, and saying if you want the full performance of this part, the details, the t- the tools to do that are in the BIOS, in the software, and we define the part to give it all to you out of the box. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's just an argument here, though. But like you're saying, they need to get out there and make this argument publicly is if you want cheap, you know, it's cheaper than the 13 or, you know, it's a cheaper prospect than the 13 600 K 5800 X3D with DDR4 and a $150 AM4 motherboard cheaper, just as good, if not better, probably better at gaming than the i5 actually, you know, get that. 7600X, you're buying into a platform that'll last five years. And it's the cheapest way to do it. I guess maybe they just accept that and don't care. They never, maybe they just don't expect to sell that many 7600Xs, anyways. Because again, they're not doing any promotion for that 7600X at Micro Center. I almost wonder if they don't care. They're like, let it build up stock. People will buy it when V650 launches. But I think that's more of a reflection of how targeted their promotion is versus that they don't care about 7600X. I'm, I'm sure they want all of them to... They want everything to sell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they want everything to sell, but they they don't want to... Um, they, they're saving their big program and their money for the Raptor Lake launch, right? You're not going to see big moves right. until retail availability of Intel CPUs because right now they are the uncontested champ. They're king of the hill, top of the everything. Well, yeah, you know, there's a, there's an argument that what we're seeing right now is just them picking the battles that are easy to win when they're easy to win. They have the strongest CPUs, so let's make sure we can easily sell the strongest CPUs when we don't have any competition from Raptor Lake. Once Raptor Lake's out, once B, then B650 will be out, then it's worth fighting that battle because this battle is a silly battle to fight until B650 launches. Yeah, you're looking in like what you're seeing right now is an artifact of the lead time of being able to move the partners to change things. Like we, you know, we all think it's like, hey, Amazon dropped the price in an email, and later <laughs> that day it happens, right? There's, there's a huge, huge amount of 
work that has to go into getting these partners to adjust pricing or do bundles and get things there. It's not a something you can execute in a day or even a week sometimes. Sometimes it takes a month. Um, so that's that's really difficult to to know, like considering how recently it all launched, the even if they've got this really fast cycle of observe, reorient, define the action and execute, then they've they've got to go put it into place and that has to trickle down through everybody else. Um, so the timing is going to come. I, I don't think it's a lack of care. I think it's just they are not knee-jerk reactions. They are more uh, focused and uh, planned. So I've got a couple of questions here I want to th- get through before we move on to other subjects. QH Freddy writes in, I think you've already touched on it, but I want to ask it directly. How much of a say do engineering teams have in the marketing and segmentation of the products they design? How much of a say do you think they should have? Yeah, they should have a strong voice in that. They're, they're building these things. Um, it, it's their career, right? Some, you know, when you go and put these things out there and you put it on your resume, that can make or break what you've, you know, you've whether you're heralded and celebrated and everybody wants your autograph at conferences or whether people would rather not talk to you. So definitely they should have an input and there's a process for this called MRD and PRD. So there's the marketing requirements document where the the business unit is going to pull together. This is what we think we need to win. And they go put it in front of engineering and say, uh, I want, uh, you know, all of these things tomorrow. And then, you know, the engineering comes back and says, Here's what we can do in a time frame, or and this is how much it's going to cost. They make the product definition uh, come to life, right? The product requirements document, which is like finally like the specifics, the, the technical details, and that's what everybody goes and executes to that uh, that exact execution. Okay, so I also want to bring up something else here that I think is an emerging story. Heck, I wonder if there will be a bunch of videos about this by the time this podcast even goes live to the public, but. Um, Clean Sweep writes in and he says, hey, Tom and James, in this era of CPUs going to boosting algorithms that max out performance based on operating temperatures, is there a point where the performance gains don't outweigh the inevitable consumer and reviewer consternation? Or could broader PC do-it-yourself market conditions like cooler pricing and availability be a factor in determining how far CPU manufacturers might push things at stock? And I bring this up. There'll be two links in the description already. I believe the first one was like, Optimum Tech did a video where he found out if you turn on PBO2, and I believe just set it to the lowest negative value, I guess it just uses like 10, 20% less energy, operates at 10 degrees lower Celsius or something, and often outperforms the stock 7600X or whichever X you're testing. And this is something that I also noticed on Paul's hardware, another link in the description, where in his 7600X review, he found it works kind of fine with a standard cooler but it does overheat. Well, it doesn't overheat, but it throttles if you use a Wraith Stealth. But if you use this PBO2 that's set to the negative value thing, all of a sudden it's like a 95, 65 watt chip again. And it doesn't seem to lose performance in the benchmarks he's testing. So I want to bring that up, like just Clean Sweep's question of should something be done sometimes where they go, hey, we're going to remove 5% performance so this thing can be a normal 65 watt chip again. And also what the heck happened? Because I've seen we've seen this before, I want to say with like Polaris or like where if you undervolted it, you could just remove 30% of the power, which I know that's true with most graphics cards. But 
not usually 30%. And now we're seeing Zen 4. And there seems to be possibly a narrative emerging where if you just turn on PBO and set it to a negative value, same performance, 20% less power. How did this not happen by default with Zen 4? Yeah, so you've got a lot of combination of things in here. Like, so this is the marginality. This is binning. This is silicon lottery. People with great CPUs are going to be able to turn on PBO2 and set the curve optimizer, the, the maximum negative value, and drop as much voltage out of it. And the chip's going to be like, yeah, I can still run, right? But even in that video you described, and he says, you know, start at that, that, the maximum and then work back until you stop getting instability. So not every CPU is going to be able to do this. Early on, right, best bind, best silicon, you're going to find a ton of parts that do it. As we get more and more volume, you're going to find a lot less parts that can do it. So this Once is, they launch that 7600 and 7800 X3D yeah, and they're using the bins for other stuff. Yeah, worst case, um, silicon uh, characterization is the standard product definition. You can't rely on best fast corner for... Uh, defining every CPU because you're going to get a bunch of them that can't do it and won't deliver on the brand promise of, you know, this is the clock speeds and all this other stuff. So I think that we're in a way better position than if this didn't exist, right? If you weren't able to Mm -hmm. just simply set up PBO2 and Curve Optimizer and it was two clicks in the BIOS and you dropped your temperatures and your voltages like this to get the same amount of performance, wow, like what an innovation from AMD from the engineering team to enable like overclocking and undervolting at the same time uh, to make it so simple. So uh, yeah, this is really a big step forward. Um, it's just again, it's not clearly articulated to the market. People yeah, I was about understand. to say they should have told reviewers this, about it. This is the work they need to go do. Um, but mm-hmm. you, know, you know, the reason why they don't put this front and center in the launch is because. Uh, there's a certain set of reviewers that will latch onto this and just run with it. Oh. And the more people you tell about it, the more they're going to run with it. And so you just let them find out about it. So it's a little bit of uh, a marketing strategy of like, let's go for, see who really cares about this. How many people actually think this is a number one defining value proposition feature for this product? And there's a large amount of people online talking about it. But I don't think a lot of buyers really care about it because it's just going to be like, oh, hey, you know, in six months' time, people are going to come online and be like, can I use this AMD Wraith cooler from the last gen on my new CPU? And someone will say, yes, if. And then they'll link to a video and show and I couldn't be doing it. Like, oh, cool, thanks. I'll just buy that Cooler Master Hyper 212. Don't worry about it then. And it's done, right? And it, the, mm-hmm. It's just about building institutional knowledge and the tribal knowledge inside of the ecosystem, and you, you're good to go. So it's... Ultimately, it would be a lot of work to preface it and get to that place. It still needs to be done now that you've got uh, a softer launch than perhaps everybody expected. Um, But honestly, I I think we all kind of knew that there was going to be a soft launch in Q4 of this year because of the macroeconomic conditions. Like It was just inevitable. All right. So I want to pivot now to a new conversation. Spamtum G. Spamtum writes in and he says, with HEDT and Workstation Threadripper being merged into one effective lineup, at least for now, it seems, will there be a new naming scheme to replace Ryzen HEDT or are they just not going to say HEDT anymore? And I think this is an interesting conversation because, I mean, we've watched this, right? And AMD, frankly, just raffle stomped Intel with Threadripper, then raffle stomped them again. 
And you were there when that happened, so I'm sure you're happy to hit. Then you guys raffle stomp them again. And then Intel just w- waved the white flag and walked away. <laughs> like, and since then, though, AMD is like, well, you're walking away. This is my perception. Well, then we're going to walk away. And we've had nothing but Threadripper Pro now, which they call r- Workstation. Like, I, where do you see this going? Do you see a new Threadripper coming to HEDT soon? Do you think it should only be called Workstation moving forward? The Intel contacts I talked to for the past year said they're saying HEDT is dead as well, that they're just going to call Fishhawk Falls, the 24 core I leaked, the 34 core that Intel uh, showed off at their innovation event, that these are just going to be the new Workstation and that this isn't worth calling HEDT anymore. Or do you disagree? Do you think they should keep calling some of them HEDT? Um, I mean, to, to me, it's uh, synonyms. HEDT is a workstation. Workstation is HEDT. I don't really care what you call it as long as you buy it, right? So that's that's what disappointed but for me so much was, you know, you, there's, the channel took such a long time to get uh, Threadripper parts, and they're, they're really hard to find. But I think that's an artifact of just how successful Epic is. So, mm-hmm. you know, win some, lose some, right? Um, on the other hand, you know, the side of that, right, is like, I'm not hurting on my 3990X. I'm not sitting here going, man, this CPU just can't do enough for me. I need the upgrade, right? I'm not jonesing for that next gen. As much as I love the performance increase on the 5995, don't need it. I don't, I'm not, wow, I, I gotta have it. If I was buying today, I would buy the 5995, but uh, you know, I'm not gonna upgrade. So the timing's right. Obviously, it was a wonderful validation to take a Skunkworks project and to just do a clean kill headshot on an Intel product line and then just wind it down and walk away and say, good game, let's mm-hmm. go, go do something else. doesn't happen often in any market to, to be able to do that, but it, it, it's certainly fun. And you know, we executed a roadmap, and they continue to execute a roadmap that is just dominant, which mm-hmm. is you know, really, really good. Well done to them for that. Um, I wish that because I'm an enthusiast and I love playing with these things and I just, you know, I will sit there and stare at the number of calls and threads be bopping around and whatever, then yeah, of course I wish they'd introduce a thread ripper at every uh, Ryzen introduction, but uh, I'm okay with it. it it's these, um, there are options, right, for those people. Like you said, workstation buyers don't really care about the product. They don't know, they don't care if it's a Core i9, a Core iX, a, a Threadripper, a Threadripper Pro, uh, a Xeon or an Epic. They want a box that works uh, and they'll buy whatever fits into that. And, you know, in their software costing four to 10X, the hardware costs doesn't matter to them what's inside of it. It only matters the performance per whatever unit they're measuring it, right? Performance mm-hmm. per time. If it saves them time, gets them done faster, so they can they can build more uh, hours, they can get more projects done, they can increase their quality, then they'll buy it. And that's that's you know, that market truly is only performance sensitive. They are not like the the, the performance desktop or the mainstream desktop market where they're price sensitive and you know now becoming aware of energy sensitive and heat sensitive. In that HEDT and workstation, does it work better, faster, harder, stronger? It's the only question you have to answer. Everything else is by the side. So, well, then how do you see the workstation, HEDT, whatever you want to call it, which I pretty much mostly agree. How do you see that stacking up next year? Because from what I'm gathering, it seems like 
Fishhawk Falls, which is monolithic, Golden Cove, you know, Emerald Rapids slash Sapphire Rapids. The same bugs that affected the multi-die Sapphire Rapids have affected Fishhawk Falls, the 24 core I leaked last year. And from what I've heard, the 34 core that was just teased by Intel as well. Sounds of it, these are going to launch around the middle of 2023. And it kind of, to me, seems like Zen 4 Threadripper is going to maybe launch quarter three, not quarter two. We'll have to see. But that, how do you think that's going to work out? Like Intel has a platform with a monolithic 24 core, an insanely huge 770 millimeter squared 34 core monolithic chip. And AMD is bringing out a 96 core Threadripper. And let's be honest, if they want to, a 96 core Vcash Threadripper, if they really wanted to by the end of next year as well. Do you think Intel's got a good niche here against that? Or do you think it's more a matter of they need to get it out first because once Threadripper hits the ground, it's kind of over again? No, this is a platform story. So um, the, the reason for Intel Workstation to exist is for Intel data center and AI ML accelerators to have something to plug into that isn't an AMD board. So mm -hmm. it's, it's all about uh, a one-stop shop, uh, making it simple and easy to buy, to optimize. It's going to be a software story. So you're going to see Radeon Instinct on Threadripper Pros and Epics versus whatever these Intel processors come out with and the Intel graphics and Intel accelerators. Yeah, I forgot they were called. I think they might be called like Xeon Extreme is the plan or something, yeah. Yeah, whatever whatever they end up, Xeon W, Xeon Extreme, mm -hmm. Xeon Ripper, I don't know what it is. <laughs> it doesn't really matter for, the, for understanding where they're going to go with it, right? They're, they're going to use it to power their uh, overall story and they're going to go after optimizing some popular software to use an all Intel solution. Because that's that's really what AMD are trying to do, and so this this is going to be a of who can kick out Nvidia first, um, and mm. that'll be the the big battle, right? So this is going to be where we see do the software guys let Intel and AMD optimize their software to the extent that they have done with Nvidia and give them an equal footing and equal uh, billing. All right, so let me move on to this. What do you think about laptop? Raptor Lake's going to be launching, I think, the top end of their laptop line. It sounds like December, basically, or something. Like, they're going to at least say it's out at the end of this year. Um, and then after that comes Dragon Range, which is, of course, just the laptop version of Raphael 16 cores using the same chiplets. I'm told that Dragon Range supports Vcash. Whether AMD decides to launch Vcash laptops, we'll have to see. But they want to, they can. And then Phoenix also launches for like the 35 watt and below uh, premium form factor. Like, I, I don't know how much I have to ask about this, but how do you see Intel with Raptor like doing against us? Because by everything I'm hearing, Meteor like is not coming out basically till quarter four next year. Yeah, I think we're going to see a very strong showing from AMD on this time. Like traditionally, laptop buyers don't care about the CPU inside the the, the sticker on the laptop hasn't made much of a difference uh, up until now, but now AMD uh, burst through to the mainstream for, uh, you know, everybody's, I think much more, they got much more brand awareness now. People are going to start to look for AMD laptops mm. uh, and that's really going to help them at the point of sale when they say, 
what's uh, what's coming to the, you know, which one of these should I buy? And you've got the i5 and you've got the Ryzen 5. And it's like, oh, I know they're at Ryzen stuff. That's getting really positive sentiment online. I've heard good things about that. I'm going to try it out. I'm going to go with that. I think they're beyond their uh, obvious benefits of their design because they're going to have really, really good tech. They're going to get a lot of mindshare. So part of it is going to be down to how much they can supply and how much they can get design mm-hmm. wins from the OEMs. That conversation is all about um, what you can guarantee on the supply side of things, how good the software support for it is for making a platform work, and uh, pricing. So Intel traditionally strong on all of those three things. So it's an uphill battle for AMD, but I think that this is the generation we're going to see like AMD laptops uh, really bursting out. Yeah, and you know, I should have brought this up earlier. You know, when I talked about AMD kind of sidestepping the do-it-yourself market a little bit because it's in a recession. From what I'm hearing, the pre-built laptop market this is uh, still selling pretty well, actually. And so, do you think there's an argument to be made though now with Dragon Range using literally the same chiplets that are in Raphael that if the desktop market is a shit show, shouldn't they just take those chiplets and put them in laptop when they have a chance to win? Because I mean, look, Raptor Lake looks very efficient compared to Alder Lake at 65 watts, but I still expect it to be at least 10% below Zen 4 efficiency, if not 20, 30% at 45 and 65 watts. And then they can throw Vcash on top of that with no power consumption increase, and it's just a complete bloodbath and enthusiast laptop. Shouldn't, isn't it just like an obligation to their investors to just go, hey, if the desktop market sucks, laptop, let's take laptop market share, which we'd have no issue taking for the past couple of years. Yeah, we got to go after the heart of the market for the most efficient uh, solution, efficient in terms of cost and ability to build. So, you know, enthusiast laptops grab the headlines. They don't sell in huge volume. It's not uh, so nice to have. It's part of the halo effect, win on Sunday, sell mm-hmm. on Monday. But, you know, Dell, HP, Lenovo, Acer, Asus, they don't sell um, mostly the i9s and Ryzen 9s. They sell Ryzen 5s and Ryzen 7s. That's what corporations buy. That's what um, big IT corps uh, deploy. It's what's mostly on the shelf in the in the stores because of the price point. Uh, you know, you're not going to. People are very allergic to spending more than a thousand dollars on a laptop. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's you know that that's all challenged by the perceived value of uh, of phones, right? How, you know, how can I buy a phone that does all these wonderful things and has all these great apps on it and, and social experiences. But when I go to my laptop, they're like, yeah, yeah, no, you can't do that. You don't get background noise cancellation. You don't get all these other things. You just get you know, terrible battery life and the ability to run Adobe apps with a mouse. Ooh. So it's going to challenge value prop in, in mobile computing, but still you know, businesses and people who work uh, using laptops need need some options, but the high-end gaming laptops, we saw a, a push on them during the uh, last couple of years for mm-hmm. the obvious reasons. I don't think that's going to sustain because we also saw those people go, oh, wait, these are compromised gaming platforms. They don't perform like the brand. It goes back to brand promise, right? An RTX 3060 in a laptop and an RTX 3060 in a desktop, very different performance. How can you know? How do you know from just looking at it that that's going to be the case? 
Well, I mean, hopefully they're nice enough to tell you the TDP limit it has, because if they do, exactly then right. you know which one what it you, is. What do you yeah. do with the TDP limit, right? Like if you're just Joe Blow standing there and you've got a $1,000 desktop and a $1,000 laptop and on the surface they've both got Ryzen 7s and GTX 3060s in them, one of those is going to perform a lot different, right? But can you just can you just put it on the consumer and be like, well, you should know that that little one doesn't perform like the big one. Or do, you, do is there a... a education that has to happen for them to understand that even though they've got the same numbers on them so that's uh i, I you know i think that amd's got the right strategy with um with that single that with that product strategy i don't i don't know that chiplets in a laptop make a lot of sense so you think that even if they'll have those high-end dragon range laptops and those will be cool for those that want them, uh, Phoenix is going to have to be what takes the market share anyways, and that doesn't share chiplets with desktop. Kind of sounds like that's what you're saying. Yeah, that's my expectation. Mm-hmm. This fall, where you're trying to stay warm and avoid scary activation fees for Windows software, consider using CDKeyOffer.com. CDKeyOffer.com is a long-term sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead and its community for any time anyone in this community needs legitimate Windows keys and doesn't feel like paying excessive monopolistic licensing fees to get access to them. But that's not all they offer either. They also have great deals on PlayStation, Steam, Origin, and Uplay keys and physical products like gaming chairs and keyboards as well. They are always running sales, but make sure you use the best code Codes possible provided for the Moore's Laws Dead community. Use the link in the description or on screen, and then use the code Broken Silicon to get 25% off. Windows codes or die shrink for 3% off everything else on the website. This really does help Moore's Laws Dead when you use these keys and click these links, and it helps you pay reasonable prices for products that, let's face it, you just kind of need sometimes and you don't want to overpay for. Go to cdkeyoffer.com today. Well, so, but on that note, then pivoting ahead, uh, Rafa Zaya writes in and says, hello, as we've seen features like ray tracing and DLSS add value for GPUs, at least for some people buying them, does James expect new features being important for CPUs, neural engines or the like, or something else like that seem to be missing in the new generation of CPUs, but are on the horizon. And and I do think that's worth bringing up because we're already talking about AMD's already teasing like the uh, AI engine inside of Phoenix. And I know Meteor Lake has a neural engine. Strix has an e- uh, even more accelerators. So does um, Arrow Lake. Like, how important do you think it's going to be soon to compare the neural engines and accelerators in these laptop chips versus just looking at cores and clock speed and how many, you know, compute units are in the GPU? Yeah, it's going to be critical very, very soon. And Intel and AMD both believe this, which is why they've developed this IP. AMD went and bought Xilinx. Uh, Intel have been working on this for a long time. They've had it in their CPUs for a couple of generations now. So this is going to get stronger and stronger. They just need the software ecosystem to start taking advantage of it for natural language processing to enable better voice assistant, better video processing and AI augmented functions. Like it, you look at the crazy filters you can get on social media apps mm-hmm. and then try and do that on a laptop, like it's just, it, it fails miserably because they're trying to do it purely on the CPU and occasionally with a little bit of GPU acceleration, but not not near what it needs. Right? You, you, you need an image signal processor. You need a DSP. You need uh, an AI ML engine 
for running some of these inference models, whether they're whatever you know graph that they are. You, they've got to come to laptops for these form factors to survive more than a few more years. Otherwise, you're just going to see the continuance of ARM, like you're going to see mm-hmm. people like Qualcomm and others bringing in laptops that have the just feel like way more powerful and capable phones. And that's mm-hmm. going to be super, super attractive to uh, Gen Z and Gen Alpha, right? And they're going to say, I don't want a laptop. Those are for boomers. And that would be the that would be the death of PCs. We're running x86 Windows, uh, people wander around with. It's going to be uh, all ARM-based. Yeah, unless they start doing the things that ARM SOCs are doing well, which looks like they're trying to. Yes. Um, all right, I want to skip a couple of these questions on the sheet here and get to this one because... Um, I think it's a really interesting one that I didn't even think of asking you, but I know you might be able to say something. We'll see. Dig Wiggler writes in and he says, hi, Tom and James. Will AMD ever get SMT4 working? I remember this being mentioned for years and years, but it is yet to see the light of day in any of their products. If it ever does come to the desktop or laptop market, I mean, will it? I think this could be something vital for AMD to combat Intel and segmenting their product stack instead of just using little cores or some other kind of big little strategy of their own. So yeah, you don't work at AMD anymore. I know for a fact that there were some models of like like Zen 3 and onwards where they were trying SMT4, just like... Vcash was tested on prototypes long before it ever got released into a product for years before they really got it working. Like, how far, I don't know if you can answer, like, if you really know, how far along was SMT4? Do you think we're going to see it in the next few generations? Or do you think that there is a reason it hasn't come out yet that means it never will? Yeah, so SMT, simultaneous multi-threading, is really a reflection on how many how many bubbles there are in the pipeline as the instructions flow through that you can then insert extra work for unused instruction units. So it's kind of a, a reflection like, well, how much dedicated silicon do you have for each part of the pipeline? And mm-hmm. how can you have uh, the instructions fed in? And then how much you know ability do you have for the you know, data ports, memory ports, to be able to get the information that it needs, the cache sizes, um, you know, AMD here, their SMT implementation provides a higher uplift than Intel hyperthreading. Especially Zen 4s. Zen 4s, SMT is incredible. So that tells you they've got more bubbles in the pipeline to put instructions into to to increase throughput. So that would kind of lead you to say, well, maybe they can go from two logical threads to three or to four um, you know, IBM pirate a, a way out in front of this one with theirs, but I don't think that they're continuing to push the envelope. I think it's a feature that you'll see most like if we see a uh, radical architecture, microarchitecture update, or even an ISO update. Uh, x86 has a robust vector extension enablement with really good AI uh, instructions. So bigger than 512-bit, like, you know, beyond the 2048-bit okay. of ARM, like matching RISC-V going to 16384-bit, then I can see, like, if you're designing a converged core that is Scalar x86 plus this brand-new um, vector unit that's monstrous that dominates your core die size, then you can really be like, okay, well, now I'm doing a whole ton of processing. I'm going to feed this beast that is not the other side of an interconnect, but the other side of, a, you know, it's 
just right here, it's, it's an adjacent logical instruction unit, then I need a way deeper pipeline. I need more threads to come through here. I'm still servicing accelerators over PCIe, AXI, CXL. Then I can see a need. But really what you're seeing is that there's uh, other bottlenecks or limitations uh, that are, are stopping uh, really the usefulness and utility of SNT4. It's not that it's technically not possible. It's just it doesn't bring any uplifting workloads today. It needs a... You know, you Compared to other things they could be working on. Right, yeah. But it's, it's not the, the biggest bang for the buck increase. Right. It's funny, and I don't want to speak into too many specifics because it's been such a while since I looked at this documentation, but a lot of the things you talked about that would make SMT4 worth it were mentioned in the same breath as the Royal Core project as Intel, by the way. So I do think Intel's trying to bring that by 2026 as well which is what's so interesting. And so you think maybe they played with that around with that with Zen 3, but they're like, it's just not worth it yet. And we're, it's just it's just not worth it. Uh, I don't think they've made a, a value judgment yet. There's still the R&D is ongoing, is, is my guess. I, I don't think they said they got to it like, hey, we could put an implementation into Zen 3. You guys want it? And someone said, no, I don't want that. That's, that's stupid. They're still working to, to get it, right? There's, back to this whole process of MRD, PRD. Like, the marketing requirements and the product requirements are going to drive the technology development. And a lot of that stuff is the top level stuff that the CTO goes off and talks to all these uh, you know, big customers, the cloud natives, the hyperscalers, the top global OEMs, the top gaming companies. And that's what's reflected into those documents and those design decisions. And I don't think that none of those guys are going to tell you, I want SMT4. They're going to give you, mm. here's what my workload looks like in two years, yeah. three years, five years. Here's what I'm trying to get to in 10 years. How can you help me get there? And then they're going to go try to solve that problem uh, based on their innovation and technology. I think that's where you will see maybe they'll come up with something. Yeah, maybe AMD was thinking they might have it ready to make sense with Zen 3. But no. It is worth mentioning. It's not as simple as we got it working. Let's tape it on. None of these things are Lego bricked onto each other. There's like a whole lot of planning and stuff that goes into like when you do anything this radical. Yeah, for sure. That would be, you know, like, hey, do we want to include it in the Zen and whatever number mm -hmm. architecture and then go get the engineers to start working on what does that core look like? So architecture spec and then go to physical implementation. So that's pre all of that. You wouldn't you know, go look at Zen 3 and be like, hey, can I stuff this in here? Like, that's not going to work. Yeah, this just reminds me of those conversations before the PS5 and Xbox Series X came out, and they were like, it's really RDNA 1 with this taped on. And I'm like, that's not how architectures work, dude. Like, none of these are just, like, half of this architecture and half of this one. It's its own microarchitecture built from everything that they wanted to pull from. Like, Yeah, um, that's right. All right, let me, let me move on to this then, pivoting to... One more thing I really do want to get into with you before we run out of time here. So MCH writes in and he says, what's your opinion on the recent Ada Lovelace segmentation and the extreme and negative reaction to it, particularly the decision to call the 8103 and 8104 GPUs a 4080? Could NVIDIA have handled this better? And I, before I read that reader mail, I knew I was just going to ask you what you think of the 4080 12 gigabyte. What do you think, man? Oh, a lot of thoughts on this one. Like, uh, so to come right out and say I don't like it, uh, but I understand what. Like, we we've had for years uh, different P 
gigabyte models of cards. And then people ask, what's the difference? And it's really hard to explain, right? So, you know, looking back in time, there have been greater bus width editions of same GPUs, but they give a little bit more frequency to, and, you know, to justify the increased bus width for the extra memory. You say, oh, it's a little bit faster. So it's about a brand promise, like a 4080 12 gig and a 4080 8 gig. Or shouldn't you get more performance when you buy a 12 gig versus an 8 gig? Yes, yes, you should. Why else would you buy it otherwise, right? Previously, the answer was like, hey, if you get the 8 gig or the 16 gig, and the other difference is the amount of memory on the card is that, well, if you use something, if you do something that is more than 8 gigs of memory, then you'll appreciate 16 gigs. Well, who's that? Well, it might be somebody working in 5K in Lightroom or something. I don't know. <laughs> Go figure it out, right? It was always a nebulous answer. And, and that's the argument I heard for the 1063 gigabyte, that they disabled like one or two SMs. They said, well, we have worse yields, and at the end of the day, we think the 6 gig should perform better than it in all scenarios. It's just 5% who cares. Yeah, and it was about addressing a market segment and, uh, again, it's all about how do you make people think that the your mid-range compares to their high-end. So, you know, artificial segmentation. So this one I don't get. I mean, I know they're trying to move price points up. It's massive yeah. <laughs> price increases. I'm not a fan. Um, it, it looks lower than the retail pricing we saw during the last couple of years, especially like 3090 Ti's. So... I get why they're priced the way they are because they've got, you know, a year's worth of inventory at distribution at mm -hmm. uh, retailers. So they just gave everybody space. Like the, again, like we said before, it's never about the newest gen versus the newest gen. It's always newest plus last gen on both sides of the fence. There's A, a B, C, D to consider mm -hmm. what they did by pricing it like this was just give all their uh, partners some breathing room and some time to clear inventory because they know that the price cuts are going to, and the price adjustment are going to come, but they also don't know how good AMD are going to be. So they're holding off. They're going to give them price points because, you know, if they come in lower, then, you know, that you potentially could be seen to the market as like, well, AMD is going to be really good this time. So they've come in with a better value prop. NVIDIA would never do that. It also could be like, you, you know, what if AMD are, aren't meeting expectations and NVIDIA is the clear winner, or well, now you can't raise prices because you already told you, right, this is how much it is. It is mm -hmm. And you've got, you know, the macro... Which I think they did with AMP, or I think they right. both over and underestimated AMD in different ways. Yeah, very, very true. So this one, you know, this GPU launch is going to be a dogfight. AMD are going to be very competitive uh, on different metrics. Depends on where you're looking, depends on what you care about. And that's going to drive uh, the price adjustments in the market. So this one's another one, wait and see. So again, unless you're 100% a FOMO and uh, an online influencer that wants to show off the latest and greatest, don't buy. Don't buy. Stay on the sidelines. Wait for benchmarks, bench for weight marks, whatever it is that you do to wait until Q1 and you can see a full platform-to-platform -platform comparison of all the CPUs, all the motherboards, all the, yeah. all the GPUs, and their latest pricing after we get through this crunch, um, you know, ask for money for Christmas, not GPUs. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. That's a good thing to say. <laughs> you know, maybe everyone just asks for money for Christmas so you can buy everything at a discount in January. Um, yeah, buy get Amazon gift cards right now. When you've got inflation going on, you just need to keep uh, buying gift cards at your favorite retailer. You know, the funny thing is, I think 
I've, I think people have heard me out, actually. I think I've explained what's going, why, why, not making it okay. I don't like the 4080 12 gigabyte, but it's very easy for me to explain what NVIDIA is thinking. I was worried people would think I was defending them in my recent content, but I think people get that I'm not. I, to make it more clear that I think what they're doing is shitty, let me just put it this way. I think NVIDIA started smelling all of their farts and thought they all, all smelled great at the same time. So... I can I can understand where NVIDIA was coming from with the 4080 12 gigabyte. The 980, the 680 was the 104 die. The 980 104 die, the 1080 104 die, the 2080 104 die. The exception is Ampere. And if you think about it, those prices, the 680 was 500, the 980 was 550, the 1080 was 700, and the 2080 was 800, and now it's 900. This is a straight line in price increases on the same die size. Anyone who argues with die sizes, the 680 was the same die size as the 4080, 12 gigabytes. So I don't want to hear this. The 1080 was also a similar die size. But here's the thing, though. They did it all at once. They did the price increase, the smaller die, and uh, <laughs> and used the 104 die all at the same time. They did all of it. Like, if they would have just used the 104 die, but it was 700, I think people would have accepted it. If And then they called the 4080, 16 gig, the 4080 Ti, right? If they would have just done a price increase, but used the bigger die. But the thing is, they used the smaller die, increased the price. They did all of it at once. And I think it's just bit them in the ass because they thought they could get away with everything they're doing with the 4080 12 gigabyte. Not the first time. They've done this before, everything they're doing. But I don't think they've ever done all of the shitty stuff at once. And this is what we're seeing. That's how I would summarize it. Uh, well, I don't think anybody would ever call you an NVIDIA apologist because of that. But um, it's, <laughs> yeah, no. you know, like NVIDIA are steely-eyed missilemen. They know how to build big silicon. Like you just said, they keep bringing in these big chips. Uh, they're, they're right. They know how to do it. They did do everything at once. I bet they war-gamed it out. And like in the current conditions, there is no... Um, move where they are celebrated as heroes. They don't get to be the good guys in the market. Oh, maybe that's so the decision you think they made? They're, they like, they're going to hate us no matter what. They're going to hate us no matter what, so let's give ourselves the most amount of options. Let's take the 104, put it here, put this price, because I can always go to the market and do deals, bundles, specials, and sales after the fact and have everybody feel that they're great and right for waiting but they're still buying me, right? Ultimately, what they're hoping to set up is the choice in the market is either a, is either NVIDIA new gen or last gen. And that's, you know, 90% of that is a pricing conversation because it's performance per dollar. So they were just waiting to see. They set themselves up so they've got a, a, a trap to spring. When AMD comes to the market, no matter mm -hmm. what their pricing is, they've got an option. If they'd come in, you know, kind of based off of this historic here's what die size costs what, then they, they limit their options. So they gave themselves, you know, this is a great chess opening. It's never the final play. This is never meant to be checkmate from NVIDIA. This is always the first pawn. So you're going to see them mm. playing games and moving things around for the next 12, 18 months. Well, so I'm starting to gather information on the RTX 4070. And the thing that I'm laughing to myself every night about is what do you price it at though like i don't get it like the 4080 12 gigabytes 900 so do you price it at because then everyone hates it so what do you do price it at give it 95 percent the performance okay then what 700 is still the most they've ever charged for a 70 class i just can't help but go 
Hey, everyone knew you were going to charge a lot of money, NVIDIA, but why didn't you just make it 800 and call it the 4070 so it wasn't confusing? Like, Do you think that in of itself was a miscalculation, though? Because I don't know where they go from here because they can't really price drop it. There's there's no room to price any of the rest of their lineup reasonably uh, that I can see. I think it's the exact opposite. They have all the room in the world to price reasonably. Like now they can like the, the like what card did you recommend everybody buy last year? 3070, right? What was it before that? 27. What was it before that? 1070. Well, 5700 are... XT, my friend, which you should be happy to hear that because I believe <laughs> that's when you worked there. But yeah, the 3070 I liked from Ampere. Uh, if you could get it for its MSRP, which you couldn't, but. <laughs> yeah, right. But so now they've got the 4070 in their pocket and nobody has any idea what the price is, right? Because they've got so much room. So they can do a number of different things. They can leave the 4080s where they are and bring in the 4070 at 500, depending on what the AMD stack looks like. And everybody say, well, man, why is the 4080 so high? Don't care, buy a 47 if you don't like it. All right, well, they can bring the rest of them down on top of it, right? And they, well, they can bring it in at 700 and then bring it down. Like, they've just given themselves a huge playground. They, they've they come out with the high end that are the lower volume cars that don't make up the meat of the market. And now they're going to come back and see, like, you know, how much room can I give myself for a 4070 and a 4060? And the answer is they've given themselves the entire mainstream stack price to the to two products they are that's the way they're looking at it they've got a massive amount of flexibility and they're willing to take that flexibility and trade for this launch uh sentiment well so i have to ask then what do you think amd should do with rdna3 because let's just set some ground rules for what we expect unless you're willing to tell me you know something (laughs) but i think we can assume navi 31 close to 8102 performance Everything I'm hearing is it's much more efficient, that they're probably not going to push it the hardest out of the gate, that they're going to save the top bins that can be clocked high for later so they can launch like a 7950 XT later that's overclocked once the dust settles. But like, it sounds like they for sure have a 7900 XT coming. They probably have a 7800 XT coming, both of those in November. Do you think they should massively undercut NVIDIA with these? Because I do hear they cost less to make than Lovelace. And Lovelace really does cost more to make. And that's because the cooling requirements are lower, the die costs are lower, the boards are about the same as before. Like you're adding maybe 10, 20% to the bomb cost for RDNA 3 instead of like 30 to 60% or more to Lovelace with their ridiculously designed architecture. What do you think AMD should do? Should they undercut them or is it senseless? Well, this this is a really uh, interesting market now. You've got the third mm-hmm. player entering the chat. So you've got, uh, a lot of dynamics to come out with. Um, so I think what they should do is go after market share, which means aggressive pricing, and really lean into the AMD, AMD advantage. So talk about the quality of the experience that you get and the simplicity, and it just works together with an all AMD system. Get that attached, right? For them, what they want to get is look at the number of systems shipping, with a Ryzen CPU that don't have a Radeon GPU and try to flip them. That they mm-hmm. should be stealing slots. Uh, that's a, a pricing conversation with their SI partners, with their OEMs, and with the channel market. So I think go fairly aggressive, still, you know, don't 
go to the bargain basement and trash the margins. But again, NVIDIA have given them all the room in the world. So what do you do when you do that? They, they want to come in. I think they'll come in high-priced in the channel and low-priced into their volume uh, partners, wait to see where the 4070 comes, and then adjust the price uh, based on that, and then uh, adjust them further. Like The other thing you want to, they want to see here is who can move the market, right? If they introduce their products, AMD brings theirs in, NVIDIA drops the 4070 and causes AMD to react, NVIDIA are still king of the hill because they move the market. They are the definers, right? Mm-hmm. What AMD need to come in and do is price it so well that everybody else goes, yeah, AMD, AMD are good, NVIDIA need to move. Just like Ryzen has, right? Ryzen has come in and Intel need to move. So they need to repeat that strategy. And that brings me to the, like one of the biggest things I've been thinking about is what is that price though? Because if you think about it, I'm thinking ahead and I've noticed this before. AMD undercuts NVIDIA by a certain amount and people go, well, it's still expensive. And I'm like, okay, I guess the 6900 XT is still expensive, but the 3090 costs 50% more while using more energy for about the same performance. You can't tell me that just because it's still expensive, AMD isn't offering you supremely better value. But I'm worried a lot of people will do that, though. They'll just go, well, it's still expensive, and if I want the best, I'm always going to buy NVIDIA. So what I wonder is, like, for example, the 7900 XT, I've been expecting that to be $1,200 for a while, which there's two things you can think about that. You could say AMD raised the price versus last gen, or you could say it's the same price as a 4080, which is crazy because it used to be the same price, you know, more comparable to a 3090. Is that enough to go 1200 or do you think they need to keep it 1000 And then the 7800 XT, I'm of two minds as well. They can make it 900 That's way raising the price from 650 last gen. But it's the same price as the 4080 12 gigabyte, and it's the 7800 XT, and it's pretty sure it's going to blow it out of the water, at least in rasterization. Because I think that's what I'm saying. I think there's two ways they can go, 900 and 1200 or they can go 750 and and 1000 and just make a statement. Do you think they should do that or not? What I would argue for is uh, 1800 um, and take a purely market-based view like I, I think that no gpu should be over a thousand bucks for consumer gaming uh, and i would come in at 800 because 200 dollars is a fairly understandable price delta mm-hmm. um and then go from there and see how everybody reacts um i i think that they'll probably be having a conversation internally of like why can't we just price exactly the same as nvidia mm-hmm. and then do exactly what we do with G-Skill. You buy a Ryzen CPU, you get $150 off of a Radeon card. So it looks like you're getting a $1,000 GPU, right? Do do the bundles, right? Get that CPU plus GPU attach rate. If you buy AM5 or AM4, then we will discount the heck out of you on a Radeon mm. GPU because that's the game, right, is the A plus A story. Get everybody on Ryzen buying Radeon because it's the best value, the best experience, the best everything. All AMD is the way to go. That, I think, is the conversation going on. Um, it's just a matter of how you mechanically make that happen. So do you do it, you know, A, just retail pricing that's simple and uncomplicated, or do you do it uh, B, which is a go bundle it and do it with your favorite partners and then, you know, some people are upset because they don't have that partner program and other people are upset because mm-hmm. they don't have access to those things in their country and 
it's all all nuanced, but where one way captures the most amount of uh, dollars on the table and matches the expected demand to the supply and gives you levers, and the other one gives your best friends most of the volume and the retail sales. So, who you know, you've got to play off your best customers who are buying and helped you out through the hard times and are now looking at you going, hey, man, you got to help me because I've got all this inventory, you need to do something, versus enabling the mass market for a clean win and just you know pure, nice and simple, easy uh, mind share and performance win. You know, it's funny too, you touched on something that I think is going to be another one of those stories that emerges that people start talking about a lot this week, which is it's starting to become clear that if you use a 6950 XT with smart access memory with Zen 4, it gets a huge boost compared to using rebar in an Intel system or rebar with a 3090 Ti. And that if you were to do Alder Lake versus Zen 4 or soon Raptor Lake versus Zen 4 with a 6950 XT, it seems like Zen 4 may just walk away with an easy win, but no one's noticed that because everyone used the 3090 Ti in their reviews. Again, I'd say AMD should have maybe pointed that out to them before the reviews. I don't know. But like that is an interesting idea, though. You're like $800, 100 bucks less than the 4080-12 gigabyte, and it's way better. And, you know, we're raising the price, but if you get a AM5 system with it, we'll give you another 100 off. And you can do the same with the 7900 XT as well. You're like, we're still making a lot of money per card, man. <laughs> like, what is there to say? And in fact, by the way, I suspect the 7900 XT will be slightly cut down this time around so they can start putting away golden samples for a 7950 XT once they're sure what metric they need to hit, you know, to compete with the 4090 Ti, which NVIDIA is probably going to launch within a year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's a it's a tough decision. I think they're going to they're gonna go for simplicity. Um, I think Just the probably, price, not the bundle? They'll do the price, and then if... If things aren't going well, they'll come back and do the bundle in a quarter or so. Um, but uh, hopefully they just really start pushing this AMD on AMD is best message. We get the, mm-hmm. the most performance, the easiest uh, enablement, et cetera, et cetera. Because um, you, anytime you've got multiple providers in the market, you want to be able to explain why pick me. And if your only answer to that is because I'm the fastest, you're super sensitive to everything that happens. If you've got something else in your pocket that are like unique features and you've got your own story that you can tell, then you're in a better position. Um, and Radeon everywhere, consoles, PCs, now going into phones, starts to resonate. Well, I think that's a good place to end on like a good summarizing, overarching, very sage like, guru like, if you will, statement for segmenting products and competing in this market um unless there's anything else you wanted to discuss while you're here i mean and or plug as well i mean um floor is yours if there's anything else that we missed that you want to talk about no i mean i guess if i get a free plug i'm gonna say everybody buy an ice giant cooler they're designed for multi-chip modern cpus they're for these escalating TDPs and these high thermal requirements we're seeing. They're a great solution, long-term reliability, 10-year warranty, no moving parts, no gunk to clean out, no pumps. Uh, I'm a marketing advisor for that company, so I'm really mm-hmm. help, excited to help them come to market. You know, they've hit their first million in revenue. 
And now they're really trying to scale up and bring in new generations of product. Um, that's why there's a, a start engine fundraiser. Uh, be fantastic if everybody go check that out so they can see you know, what is the future of cooling going to look like. Now that we know what the future of processes is, which is hot and fast. <laughs> like you said, escalating TDPs. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that's, that's that's really what it is, which I guess, yeah, I'll, set, I'll put a link in the description for that as well then. And uh, I guess I will say Ice Giant sponsorships will be appearing on this channel over the next few months. But um, I will also say you agreed to come on the show before there was any talk of a sponsorship. So <laughs> that's why you're on the show. And uh I wouldn't accept those sponsorships unless it looked like a very good product. It's really interesting. It's it's uh, it's one of those things I've wondered for a while. Why more companies aren't doing more creative things with cooling when, hey, man, like if you can make a good cooler for 100 bucks, you just make every product that uses it get more bang for the buck out of them. Like, you know, I, I don't know why more companies aren't doing this. So, yeah, uh, happy to put that link in the description. And OK, well, I mean, I guess that's it. I mean, thanks for coming on. James, thank you to everybody for listening. Remember to subscribe to Moore's Law is Dead and ring the bell button on the YouTube channel. Remember to um, subscribe to Broken Silicon on your podcast app of choice and give us a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. And support us on the Patreon to ask us like James' question, get this early and ad-free, and to get access to exclusive content like Die Shrink as well. Otherwise, again, thanks for coming on, James, and thanks to everybody for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. 
Brad Medlin, Drita Fole, A.V., Anthony Greffa, Greg Pataki, Mohamed Akwari, Brett Jones, Aaron Close, Little Germany, Jan Rauner, Daniel Hyde, Shredbird, Brian Riggleman, Dr. Foreman, Dan, Sam Miller, Deke, Thomas Rupp, The Mechanical Philosopher, Terrence Herod, SNAS Chalmers, Tom Bailey, Greg T. Wanchuk, Andrew S., Frank Zielinski, Daniel D., MJB1, Eric Jackson, Justice Brennan, Sammy Good, Falcon Malev, The Boss, Haas, Nicholas Buckner, Spent from G. Span from Jonathan, Lord Starstream, General Drips, Blake, Franco Frederick, Matthew Lazier, Jensen Wang, Nathan Mose, Aziris, Gary Sacker, Dominique Cock, Jake Dude, 23. Jake Martin, Cameron, Christian Lavoie, HardForeRoom.com, Original Ross, Slicky, Lance Bassler, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Christopher A. Butler, GZ Ziggy, Sarkashu, Stephen Hart, Jason B., Meat and Pork, Stu, Tim Robb, Luis Correa, Ian Clifford, Jesse Jeskowiak, Travis Gooding, Holden Mobley, Nanyan, Chris Rich, Stephen Lerners, Mad, Zutsu Taylor, Stephen Coates, Michael McGee, Chuck Glidden, Samuel Oss, Greg, Ah Trini, Patrick Groh, Annual Chief, Brett Summers, Denny Nguyen, Stephen Dick, Tommy, Kunden, Bruja, Mark Mitchell, McDaffey, Dalmain Peterson, James, An James Anderson, Y Tree, Mark Raidmaker, Dave Schultz, 3DS Boy 08, Hal Buma, Norithio, Matthew Landavazo, Stefan, Cole Addict, Henry Zhang, Judson N, Brendan O'Connell, The Grid, Michelle Pell, D31337 Antics, Jason Bowen, Noah Nicoella, Hexa Puma, Chrysantine, Jeremy Ferriera, Mayor, Desis, Thomas Steve, Precision, DNA Tech, 50C Desert, Jean Jean O'Shea, Royce Meyer, Charles Russell, Rajneed Ari, Slushbot, Teak Autumn, Jackson Miller, JSMMH, Neith Resink, David Eastland, Cal, Andre Jacques, Gaiman Since Reagan, Jeff Sadler, Jordan Simkovic, Loophole 35, Winstar, Joker, James High Ratter, Corey Leonard, Nelima, John Shin, Justin Bustle, Kelvin, Austin Haggerty, Raji Davis, Shay, Julian Leaked, Corey Chappelle, Evan Dingle, C2, Timothy Baldridge, Samuel Park, Radiant Technologies Group, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music.